Hi, I'm Alice. And I'm Dan. And welcome back to part two of my series on the wall by Pink Floyd. And part two of the series where I suffer horrendously. Exactly! So, of course, I want to put out the same disclaimer as last time. The wall delves into some very dark themes. This side in particular deals with drugs, adultery, blood, verbal and physical abuse, child abuse, spousal abuse, death threats, suicide threats, and self-mutilation. That's a, a lot of topics. Yeah. If any of those topics are triggering for you, definitely steer clear of this episode. Drugs especially are a running theme throughout the rest of this album. Hmm. I'd also like to add a quick apology and addendum. This episode was supposed to be short. <laughs> you say that as though you've ever been succinct a single time in your life. I say this with love, but seriously. Everyone, run while you can, and I can live vicariously through you. Some people say that brevity is the soul of wit, and I live each day purely to spite those people. Well, you see, I think I am funnier than you, so I would say that they are correct. It is a personal opinion, and we shan't get into who's correct, but I'm just going to say that the person who's more correct is the one who's leading this episode. Anyway, a million hours Cringe. of, um, <clears throat> a million hours of scripting this episode later, here we are at a script that is nearly longer than part one. I can't wait to edit this. Now then, let me review a few important terms from the last episode. Pink Floyd really needs no introduction, as they're a pop culture icon across basically all generations. If you want a little more history on the band, I highly recommend watching the beginning of the first part of this series. There is one name from the band I do want you to remember from last time, and that is Roger Waters, the brains behind this whole album. Ah, yes, the name that I will continue to forget blissfully. And the name I will continue to hammer into your head. Waters based a lot of the wall off of his own life experiences, which I will be delving a bit more into during this episode, and especially in part four. He also based some of the album from the original frontman of Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett, particularly his drug escapades and subsequent withdrawal from the world. A lot of singers and stuff end up doing drugs, I think. Especially during this era, yes, uh, but this guy's story is actually pretty sad, and it inspired a lot of Pink Floyd songs and albums, actually. Guy got so traumatized that he shied away from any mention of his music. Literally, if he saw one of his fellow band members, he would drop his shopping bags and run away, but that is a story for the next part. Hmm. Again, a lot of this comes into reference in the latter half of this episode, as well as in parts three and four. The Wall is a concept album, which means that it tells a story. As I mentioned last time, this story focuses on the character Pink and his struggles and eventual isolation from the world. This concept album is broken up into four parts called Sides. Again, see by part one if you need a bit of a refresher on how that works. We talked about the songs on side one, which centered on Pink's childhood. It focused on his overprotective mother, the loss of his father to World War II, his abuse of an authoritarian school, and most importantly, the wall itself. Sad yeehaw. The wall is a mental wall that Pink builds up to isolate himself from the outside world. Each aforementioned theme is another metaphorical brick in the wall, starting with his father's death. Last but not least, I do want to mention something about Pink himself. Pink is an unreliable narrator. Oh no, I'm bad at subtext. Don't worry. That's why I'm here. Uh, worry. To be fair, this is also why everyone still debates the meanings of the wall to this day and why my explanations have to be so darn nuanced. Pink being an unreliable narrator is something that you see more and more as we delve into this side and more so in sides three and four. But it's worth noting because even inside one, especially with the movie version of The Wall, people question how accurate Pink's portrayals of figures like the mother and teachers really are versus how much was projected onto them by Pink himself. 
it's more up to the audience interpretation as to how true Pink's story is versus what's fabricated. For example, how much did Pink's mom really stalk him? Probably a bit, but likely not as much as he claims in his song Mother. This discrepancy about the unreliable narration is actually what leads to the different theories about where In the Flesh, the song that kicks off side one, actually fits in Pink's life, as well as whether Pink actually survives the ending of the album, but that's for another episode. Without further ado, let's introduce you to the songs I'll be covering in this episode. Oh boy, a full page into the script, and we're already here! Woohoo! To be fair, it is a third as long as last time's introduction, so you should be happy. We will start off with Goodbye Blue Sky, which basically serves as a recap of side one. We then move on to Empty Spaces, Young Lost, One of My Turns, Don't Leave Me Now, Another Brick in the Wall Part 3, and Goodbye Cruel World. Thankfully, Goodbye Blue Sky is a pretty simple song to dissect, comparatively speaking. As I mentioned, it mostly serves as a recap of side one, so this is Pink growing up. Similar to the first track on side one, In the Flesh, Goodbye Blue Sky starts off as quite tranquil. And unlike In the Flesh, it stays that way. You have the quintessential nature sounds and acoustic guitar accompanied by a young Pink pointing at an airplane in the sky to his mom. Fun fact, this kid is actually voiced by Roger Waters' own son. Man's had a kid? Three, actually, and I think five wives as of last year. Of course, after uh, this kid's innocent comment, the tone turns darker and more sinister for a beat before the vocals finally come in. The song has an overall melancholic and longing tone, very reminiscent of saying goodbye to one's own childhood, with, of course, an added dash of ominousness. Which, as a side note, ominousness loses any sinister and serious nature of the word ominous. What if you say it as ominous, and ominous says? That makes it even less sinister, and I hate it. Fantastic! The lyrics largely speak of the post-war paranoia. Distilled to a sentence, the lyrics talk about how the fear of bombs and war overshadowed the bright possibilities of the post-war world. Digging a level deeper, these lyrics also represent Pink's trepidation about leaving his childhood behind, especially when his mother told him about how frightening the real world was. There is also a reference in the lyrics to the book A Brave New World. I won't really analyze too much about that here, but if you do want to read more into it, I will link the exact page covering all of that in our sources. There are literal paragraphs delving into the exact philosophies and societal critiques that this reference brings up. Even Shakespeare gets a cameo in this thing. As my literary teacher said in school while talking about symbolism, if it isn't the Bible, it's Shakespeare. Or Greek philosophy! The Spark Notes version of it is this. Especially for Roger Waters, who was very anti-war, World War II caused a lot of needless horror and death, and most of those deaths were counted as mere statistics by their morally bankrupt governments. Mm. No surprise. Yeah. It also criticizes the fact that higher powers, like, say, a god that humans so worship, create such ugliness like horror and war, and humans, mm. and that striving for more technological advancements and perfection, particularly in the Nazi Germany method, although this critique did apply to the Allied powers, huh. would lead to losing a sense of individuality and, in its own way, create a living hell. The end of World War II and entrance into this quote-unquote brave new world, Pink fears, might lead us to yet another war or morally bankrupt government. I mean, look at how the chaos in Germany started on a political level, and boy, he wasn't wrong. Mm, let's not think too much about that. Also, on the technological front, this whole thing just gives me Bo Burnham welcome to the internet vibes, but I really hate where the mental meta-analysis is going. Another cool parallel is that side two opens with the song Goodbye Blue Sky and ends with the song Goodbye Cruel World. Oh, so that's where that line came from. I thought it was just a line that started being passed out as like a meme. 
oh, it actually likely dates back to the 1700s or so, particularly used as a suicide note. So, of course, Gen Z turned it into a meme. Yeah, well, fair. Though, to be fair, I don't think we were the first generation to do it, but definitely one of the ones that has kept it popular. This is also fair. Back to Goodbye Blue Sky and Goodbye Cruel World, looking at the surface level similarities, both titles start with goodbye and are three words and four syllables long. They are also thematically similar. While Goodbye Blue Sky has Pink leaving his idealized version of the world, represented by the sky, Goodbye Cruel World sees Pink leaving, well, the world, but we will talk about that later. Ominous. A final fun fact. In the movie, Goodbye Blue Sky appears much earlier in the order of things and has a slightly different meaning for Pink's character although it still denotes a change and loss of childhood innocence, but that compare and contrast is for another day. A day when I have hopefully successfully explained succinct to you. Look, just because I understand what a word means doesn't mean I'll ever actually emulate it. Let's look at song two, Empty Spaces. This song has literally four lines and yet is still over two-thirds as long as Goodbye Blue Sky. That's partially because Empty Spaces isn't the simple transition between Pink has grown out of childhood and Pink goes on romantic and sexual escapades. Rather, it's likely a return to some form of present time. In quotes. Personally, I would place this as taking place around the very end of Side 2, perhaps just before Another Brick in the Wall Part 3. But I'll get to the different theories in a moment. The most important lyrics are the first two, What Shall We Use to Fill the Empty Spaces Where We Used to Talk? This implies the presence of a second person, one who has left his life. Hmm, I just got big Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel vibes, but I suppose... Uh, that song actually has a surprising number of influences of uh, other songs from this era, and, and you're not wrong. Haha! <laughs> I agree with the more popular theory that this person uh, that Pink is talking to is his wife, who will be introduced in just the next song. It is mostly perceived that Pink, in further building his well, ends up isolating himself from his wife, or perhaps more appropriately, isolating his wife from him, which ultimately leads to her committing adultery. Other people, based off of the fact that this comes shortly after said one and mentions uh, Pink's mother, is about her. Now that Pink is all grown up, who else can he find to take her place? I mean, I know a lot of men got wives for exactly that reason. Roger Waters also knew a lot of people like that. <laughs> hmm. Thirdly, some people think that this we is a royal we, referring to Pink himself. And others still say that this refers to everyone else in the world who has built their own wall of isolation. Uh, so essentially saying, what will we use to justify our own walls of isolation after the war? Oh, so many things, good sir. I personally agree with the first theory for a number of reasons. First, Roger Waters mentioned that it was his then-wife's insistent upon communication that kept them from divorcing at the time as Waters himself constantly tried to self-isolate and push people away, but she was having none of that BS. We stand. We do. I do say then wife, of course, uh, because unfortunately the relationship didn't last forever, i.e. five wives, <laughs> uh, but in the context of when this album was made, the point still stands. Second, there is some garbled audio in the track. If you play this audio in reverse, you hear Waters congratulate you on finding the secret message and tells you to send your answer to, quote, Old Pink in care of the funny farm, unquote, before he's cut off by another person telling him, quote, Rogers, your wife's on the phone. Some people think that Hidden Lore was more of a modern video game thing, but I can assure you it dates back to at least here. <laughs> now, some people do take this quote as a joke, especially because Roger Waters and his wife are referenced uh, by name, and Waters was known for throwing in a few jokes like this. 
Some, however, take it as an Easter egg, proving that Pink is not dead at the end of the entire album, but was rather put in a mental institution uh, after something that he ends up doing, which, again, we'll get to in uh, part four. I love knowing nothing of subtext or hidden meanings. If I heard that line, I would have just been like, haha, I wonder what the funny farm is. It is, is it old McDonald's? I mean, to anyway. be fair, if you heard that line in its original context, you'd probably think it was just garbled nonsense. Someone literally took their vinyl record and found a way to play it backwards to find this very specific meaning. Going off of these theories, some people also take this line as further evidence that this song is mainly about Pink's wife, uh, not his mother or the rest of the world. Again, it could be all three of these theories, it could be none, who knows? Tonally, this song goes back to its darker origins in a methodical driving drumbeat. You can also gather that Pink is somewhere outside, perhaps a station or maybe even an alleyway, judging by these siren-like sounds. Hmm. It oozes a dark and grungy feel, only amplified by a sparse electric guitar and the off-kilter way the lyrics are sung. And at this point, I'm missing the upbeat songs like We Don't Need No Education. <laughs> yeah. But the track gives us no time to breathe and dive straight into the third song, Young Lost, where we finally get a good mention of his wife. His wife was briefly alluded to in the song Mother. And obviously, as I mentioned, Empty Spaces was also likely about her. But here, we're finally taken back to Pink first meeting and falling in love with her. Now, this song has a very rock-heavy tone, and I mean the stereotypical sex, drugs, and rock and roll type tone. Mm. There are booming vocals, heavy electric guitar, and a far more fast-paced speed. This song was initially going to be about young Pink's more cautious sexual exploits after school, but it was ultimately reworked into a narrative of how a kid raised by helicopter parents goes wild in college, or this case is a rock star. Yeah, that's um, not uncommon. And we never know, by the way, how Pink became a famous rock and roll star. Did he struggle for years? Did he find a manager? Who knows? Not this album. Yeah, it's not important. Exactly. What is known is that this song is literally satire of every quintessential rock song in existence, down to the guitar solo. Which is funny, coming from a progressive rock band, where the genre literally got a full concept album parody uh, by a band called Jethro Tull, which poked fun at how pretentious the genre was. But Thick as a Brick is a topic for another day. Funny enough, it is entirely likely that Young Lust, sounding like every other rock song at the time, was also an integral part of the narrative. Because of course I'm not done analyzing this. <laughs> this reinforces that although Pink was free from his mother's overprotective clutches, he still has no clue who he really is or has any individuality to speak of. And individuality is, again, another running theme in this entire album. I mean, even this guy's songs were just imitations of what was popular. Now I said earlier that this song is about Pink's wife, but the way in which it is about her is up for debate. The lyrics reference that Pink is a rock and roll star who needs a quote-unquote dirty woman or dirty girl who sets him free and makes him feel like a quote, real man. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Which I should also point out is the exact opposite of what Pink's mother promised in the sad one song Mother by saying Mama won't let anyone dirty get through. Mm. <laughs> that worked well. Now, this could mean that Pink has met his wife while on the road and uh, being a dirty woman alludes to her eventually cheating on him. Conversely, this could mean that Pink was already married to his wife and constantly cheated on her while he was on the road. I'm confused. His reference would be to a girl who he's cheating on his wife with. Or he was not cheating until he found out that she was, so he did it in retaliation, but That's topic for later. That's not that much better. That's, um, not better. No, it's not, but that wouldn't be until later. Mm. Whether Pink was cheating on his wife or not, she was certainly implied to be cheating on him. 
At the end of the song, Pink puts a call through to the telephone operator. And because this was in the magical times when call boxes were popular, and there were jobs for people who would physically connect these wires sending calls from one person to another, this operator asks Pink if there's supposed to be someone other than his wife at home, alluding to a guy. Very likely, the wife maybe had a brother or actual platonic friend keeping her company. Oh, gotta say, like, oh god forbid she have friends! Yeah, but if the movie version of this has any weight at all, it literally shows the wife in bed with another man who is clearly in a sexual relationship with her. So, after the song that is literally all about adultery and the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle, mm. let's move on to the song One of My Turns. Huzzah! We're officially over halfway through. <sighs> uh, so, if you didn't think that Pink felt isolated from his wife before, this song flat out confirms it. According to Roger Waters, this song emulates Pink's marriage falling apart in the imminent divorce with his wife, and it starts with Pink taking another girl up to his room. The song starts with a failed phone call, one of those, I'm sorry, we can't reach the person you're trying to contact messages. This is paired with a girl who is marveling at Pink's room, commenting on all the guitars and how this place is bigger than our apartments. <laughs> Which, yeah, death the time mood. It can basically be inferred that Pink's attempting to reach out to his wife, but is unsuccessful, and he's brought a girl up to his apartment, likely with the initial intention of sex. My wife is committing adultery? I have an amazing solution. What if I do the same? However, you never hear Pink respond to any of the girl's questions, like when she asks if she can get a drink of water, if he wants some as well, what is he watching? After getting no response from him, the girl eventually asks if he's feeling alright, and the lyrics begin. The first half of the song is sung in a very despondent tone. The musical tone, as well, is the musical embodiment of depression, uh, very muted and drawn-out chords with only a couple of instruments playing. This poor girl. She's just there, and he's having a whole depressive episode I wouldn't know how to deal. Neither did she, but you do anything for stars who you have a crush on, so. This type of music also has a more electric or synthy tone to it as well, which helps affirm this feeling of detachment. You can also hear a skipping TV program in the background, once again alluding to the fact that Pink is, well, watching TV. Hmm. And this gives... <laughs> yeah. This does give a pretty good image of a guy sitting in a room that's basically the height of luxury, yet he's slouched in his chair and unable to do more than half sort of watch the TV. Depression be like. Exactly. Most of the lyrics of the song are about Pink losing his connection with his wife. For example, the first lines are literally, day after day, love turns gray like the skin on a dying man. This is shortly followed by, I have grown older and you have grown colder, representing the distance that eventually grew to be too much for them to cope with. This also shows that Pink fully places the responsibility of what's going on on his wife rather than himself. Generally, age refers to gaining wisdom, i.e. the mantra, I've grown older and wiser. So, these lyrics can be interpreted as, I've grown older and wiser, and you've only grown more hostile and withdrawn from me. Which, again, good sir! Do I have to remind you who's actually building this wall of isolation in the first place? I was gonna say, like, oh yeah, she's not growing older, even though she's tired of having to take care of you and carry so much of your emotional burden with literally no reciprocation. How rude of her. Well, if you just wait about another hour or so of this podcast, I would say we will finally get to the point where he may or may not realize that. Hmm. Part four, coming in a few months, people. Uh. 
The next set of lyrics are sung at an incrementally faster speed and a higher intensity, as Pink uses a number of metaphors to express that he's about to explode and lash out. It starts with the lyric, I feel one of my turns coming on. The line cold as a razor blade used in here also holds a lot of meaning for the movie version of The Wall, as in it, shortly after he explodes, Pink ends up using a razor to shave off his hair and eyebrows, something that in the hands of an unstable man is a bloody scene. Another apt line is tight as a tourniquet, as that one alludes back to his father and World War II, not to even mention the funeral drum reference. And then, Pink explodes. The song suddenly shifts into an angry rock song with Pink screaming threats like, do you want to learn how to fly? Which can basically be interpreted as him threatening to throw the girl off a balcony, presumably very high up balcony since the place is so nice, and he also asks if she wants to see him try, which is a very obvious suicide threat. I know I said this before, but that poor girl. I would call the police. He actually says, do you want to call the police in his lyrics? I would say, yes, let me out. Yeah. He also says, run to the bedroom in the suitcase on the left, you'll find my favorite axe. This is another great double meaning, and again, why I love the lyrics of the song. Obviously, run to the bedroom is said in such an angry tone implies that the person Pink is talking to, i.e. the girl who he invited to his room, is frightened. Huh, I wonder why. Yeah. This axe, as well, could mean the choppy killy kind of axe, mm. uh, but it also, in reality, is just Pink's favorite guitar, which he's about to destroy soon, so... Why would he refer to his guitar as an axe? Ah! Uh. This was actually really common slang back in the day, and is still sometimes used now. Pink basically screams what would sound like normal date suggestions after this, like, let's watch TV, or have sex, or get something to eat. Mm. A lot of these are also parallels for what the girl was asking him at the beginning of the song, like getting a glass of water, or what he was watching on TV, or uh, the sexually suggestive one that I skipped, like, wanna take a bath? There are also a bunch of accompanying sounds, like screams, glass breaking, and potentially what I might actually interpret as a slap, although it's never confirmed that he did actually hit her. The song eventually ends with him asking why the girl is running away. Oh boy, I wonder. Yeah, so firstly though, yay, she is confirmed to have survived the ordeal. Oh, thank god. Yeah. Secondly, two lines before this, Pink yelled asking if she wanted to call the cops, as I mentioned earlier, so gee, wonder why. A few things to note about Pink's mental state here. First, there is the potential that Pink lashes out because he's thinking of his wife, and the girl, who is clearly sexually interested in Pink, reminds him of his wife somehow. So he lashes out at her as a proxy. Mm. Second, as I mentioned before, Pink is an unreliable narrator, and we don't necessarily know how hostile he actually got with this girl. It is very likely that he probably gave her a heart attack by lashing out like this, and that most of this song is grounded in reality. But, as we will see in sides 3 and 4 and even later here, this is probably one of the last quote-unquote grounded songs in this album. That's, that's not much better. I, I don't like that very much. No, thank you. This could also explain why Pink saw so much of his wife in the girl who he invited up to his room. Man is clearly unhinged. Implying he might want to kill his wife? As I said, unhinged. Then comes the even more cheerful song, Don't Leave Me Now, which summed up in two words as spousal abuse. Mm. The consensus is that Pink is likely not threatening his wife over the phone, as there are no telephone audio cues that have signified him calling his wife like in the past. 
However, even if what he's saying to his wife is all just in his head, I don't think anyone should ever be seriously considering anything like that. Yeah, I know. His wife should run as fast as she can. Go, girl. Get out while you still can. I think she does. But yeah, it's yeah, yeah. confirmed. Good for her. As I mentioned, Roger Waters said a lot of this was based on his life. This song was a tiny bit different, which I do want to mention, although it did carry his cynicism about marriage at the time. According to Waters, he watched so many marriages between two incompatible people devolve into a cycle of abuse, and he wrote those observations into this song, mm. uh, which starts off with so Pink begging his wife not to leave him. <laughs> Remember the flowers he sent her? He claims that he still needs her to basically eviscerate in front of his friends and physically abuse on the weekends. Mm. On the surface level, I don't think I need to analyze too much of that, aside from saying that this is a textbook case of marital abuse. And on a serious note, if you or anyone you know is being treated like this by anyone, spouse or otherwise, please get help, call a hotline, leave that relationship. Obviously, none of this is healthy behavior. I will mention Pink's status as an unreliable narrator. Because of the hallway that this song is sung, like the previous song, most people gather that these threats hold no actual weight or likelihood of follow-through, which does not make this better. Because again, mind you, threatening this stuff is still a form of abuse. And just mentally threatening people means you need some help. It's also interesting to note that a lot of the phrases he uses are reminiscent of lines from songs in said one. So, for example, the threat to beat someone to a pulp or put them through the shredder in front of his friends are incredibly reminiscent of the embarrassment and physical abuse that he endured at his school in said one. I hate this episode, Alice. Just wait for parts three and four, it gets worse. The repeated phrase, ooh babe, is also reminiscent of Pink's mother, who used those exact words to quote-unquote comfort Pink during her songs on side one. I think that alone sends a pretty powerful message about the cycle of abuse, mm. and it also just shows that regarding Pink's individuality, he has none. Even as an abuser, he is still borrowing from what he knows best, his past traumas. Just like none of his rock songs are original, even his threats come from major influences in his childhood. So this song ends with Pink again asking, why are you running away? Oh. And this question is more directly ended his wife. The entire song can be interpreted as Pink winding down from his explosive state started midway through the last song and him returning to his depressive state, lamenting that everyone eventually leaves his life. Hmm, maybe there's a reason for that. Gee, now there's a thought. Huh. As for the musical elements, the song is rather dissonant with sparse instrumentation and sharp chords. It still has a bit of the malicious bite from the last half of one of my turns, but it's much closer in tone and instrumentation to the beginning half. It also sounds like Pink is desperately pleading with his wife, the last person left in his life, as she turns her back and leaves an incapacitated Pink for good. Mm. Good for her. Yeah, no kidding. The sparse instrumentation also alludes to how empty Pink's hotel room and his mental wall are. They're basically giant voids that lack any pleasure or happiness, least of all in the form of other people. Everyone has officially left him. And this is rather confirmed by the tone of finality after Pink's lyrics, as the song ramps back up into a more classic, but still melancholy, rock sound. You can also hear the singer, who usually represents Pink's mother, singing Ooh Babe, as if Pink is regressing and trying to mentally comfort himself as if he were his own mother. Uh, mm. Which, everyone has their coping mechanisms, but man... <laughs> Now this song ends with Pink destroying his television and the cacophony of voices that are spilling out of it, basically destroying his final connection to the outside world. And finally, we reach another brick in the wall, part three. <sighs> We're getting there. This song confirms that Pink was using drugs and has officially cut off his wife, 
The lyrics, I don't need no arms around me and I don't need no drugs to call me, make this pretty explicit. Mm -hmm. He follows this up with a claim that he, in fact, doesn't need anything or anyone as they were only more bricks in his wall of isolation. And how does he plan on getting out of this wall of isolation without other people? Oh, that's the best part. He doesn't. This final part of Another Brick in the Wall trilogy basically wraps up Pink's process of building his wall of isolation. Musically, the song has the same riffs or a series of notes as the previous Brick in the Wall songs. However, this version sounds much more sinister and final, with heavy electric guitars and drums being the main backing instruments. Pink now seems very confident about screw my wife, uh, not literally, and needing love and support from anybody. I have my own wall and I am very happy with that. Thank you very much. Mm. And that's actually basically it for the song. I know, an actually short song analysis. Who would have guessed? Oh yeah, I'm shocked. Shut. Nope, I won't. So, last but not least, Goodbye Cruel World. <sighs> As I mentioned earlier, this is a nice thematic parallel to the first song on side two, Goodbye Blue Sky. This song takes Pink back to a more muted and dark place, yet he still seems resolute about shutting himself off. Mm. The riff playing at the very end of Another Brick in the Wall Part 3 very quietly repeats in the background of this song, which carries over Pink's assured decision to shut everyone else off. Other than that, you mostly have a single note being played over and over again by the bass. Something dark, but again, resolute, marching forward. Something that reminds me of the I wish it didn't have to come to this, but I'm never backing down vibes. There's also a quiet synth laying melancholic chords on top to add to the more regretful feeling. I mean, the bass probably also alludes to the, like, monotony of living life without having other people, like, close to you, really. You could say there is a monotonous tone to this, or at least a more methodical one, uh, but often a bass like this is a particularly an unfretted bass that lets the notes draw out, generally represents darker tones within music. Mm. I have spent way too much time looking into this. <laughs> yeah, I noticed. We're almost done. We are not almost done. <laughs> with this episode. So this is basically the song where Pink goes catatonic and retreats from the physical world entirely. So yes, at the end of Goodbye Cruel World, Pink is still alive, but he's basically unresponsive to any stimuli from the outside world, and he just shuts down. The lyrics add to this general resolute melancholy of the instrumentation, as Pink essentially says, Goodbye Cruel World, there's nothing anyone can do or say to change my mind. Well, not if you're not reacting to the outside world, no. Uh, yeah, d that is basically the point, and... Actually, with that final goodbye, the audio cuts out sharply and side two ends. Mm. As does our episode. So, sigh of relief, thank you for sticking with me thus far. We are precisely halfway through the songs on this album, 13 out of 26. I'd say that part three will be shorter since it's one of our shorter sides of the album, but the first song on that side is something I've written an entire paper on, so no promises. <sighs> and on that ominous note... We'll catch you next week with the Arapaho creation story, and I'll be back with part three of this monster in two weeks. And I will be there too, unfortunately. Until then, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for coming, folks. <laughs>